0: You are listening to Reach MDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. It is estimated that the lifetime prevalence rate for conduct disorder is 9.5%. The most frequent clinical referrals for young people overall are for aggressive, antisocial, and impulsive behaviors, and this constitutes a major public health problem. We will discuss conduct disorder, its prevalence, diagnosis, and treatment on this Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Boston is my guest, Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Welcome, Dr. Nock. Thanks for having me. Dr. Nock, let's talk about the symptoms of conduct problems in children and then address its prevalence. In thinking
1: about conduct problems, generally, we think about two specific diagnoses, and these are conduct disorder itself and also oppositional defiant disorder, which is a related but we believe distinct disorder.
0: And briefly, what would be the criteria to meet for those disorders?
1: So for conduct disorder, according to the DSM, one must have or must show a repetitive, persistent pattern of behavior that violates the rights of others or that is aggressive or destructive in some way. And symptoms as they're currently organized in DSM cluster into aggression toward people and animals, destruction of property, deceitful or theft related behavior, and serious rule violations. To meet criteria for chronic disorder, one must have any three of fifteen different symptoms, which is I think part of the problem in this area one could have, by by that criterion, 32,000 different types of conduct problems and still meet criteria for conduct disorder. So what we have is a a fairly heterogeneous group of children and adolescents diagnosed with conduct disorder.
0: Well, I'm thinking that you're partly probably answering the next thing I was curious about, and that is why it's so difficult to know the prevalence rates for conduct disorder.
1: For several reasons. One is how we define it. The versions, as as you will know and as your listeners will know, of the DSM have changed over the years. And even with slight changes from DSM-3 to 3R to 4, we'll see, can see drastic differences in, in prevalence rates depending on the frequency of important symptoms that are included. Also, for prevalence data, you know, one wants nationally representative data, which are not always easy to get. And in a lot of the nationally representative surveys that have been done, children and adolescents have not been assessed or questions haven't been asked about childhood and adolescence. As a result, we, we don't have a firm hold on prevalence rates for conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder.
0: You did learn a lot, though, about conduct disorder in your study published in Psychological Medicine. Describe what you found in terms of those most likely to have conduct problems.
1: This is a study conducted in collaboration with Ron Kessler from Harvard Medical School from the Department of Healthcare Policy, as well as Alan Kasdan from Yale University from the Department of Psychology. And what we did was use data that Ron Kessler collected as part of the National Comorbidity Survey replication, which was a national survey in the U.S. of about 9,000 households. We looked at data among those 18 to 44 years old, which is just over 3,000 people, and looked at data that asked about the occurrence of symptoms of conduct disorder, as well as oppositional defiance disorder and other psychological problems over the course of the lifespan. So we're looking at retrospective data, which is one important limitation. So we're seeing people when they're 18 to 44 years old and asking about what happened during their childhood and adolescence. But with that limitation in mind, what we found was, as you mentioned earlier, a lifetime prevalence estimate of about 9.5%. That rate was about 12% in males and 7% in females. So perhaps not surprisingly, we're seeing much higher rates among men than women. Or boys and girls.
0: These are high rates. Why do some children develop these disorders?
1: As with any psychological disorders, there are likely to be genetic or, or other biological predispositions as well as social factors. What we saw in this study, we looked at some correlates of conic disorder and found, as I mentioned, being a male put one at higher risk, having problems in the family, having lower education living in an urban setting, all of these things can increase the likelihood of developing conduct disorder.
0: Talk to us about the subtypes of conduct disorder that were identified in your study.
1: So this is, as I mentioned earlier, the big question. We have here a really heterogeneous group of people, and for understanding the disorder and for developing better assessment and treatment techniques, it'd really be helpful to get a better hold on on whether we're dealing with one disorder and whether there are different subtypes. Previous research efforts have done really well, I think, at identifying some subtypes of chronic disorder, perhaps the most well-known, early versus late onset. But most of these symptoms have been dichotomous, so I've taken sort of chunks, gotten pieces of the puzzle. What we did was look at all 15 symptoms and use an analytic technique called latent class analysis to see if we could understand a more complex subtype system. And what we found was evidence for three distinct subtypes, meaning that people endorsed consistent clusters of symptoms And these had to do with, the first was rule violations. So a certain subset of people in the study consistently endorsed symptoms related to staying out late, skipping school without permission, and the like. A second subtype was engaging in deceitful or theft-related behavior. And this referred to things such as stealing from family, stealing from others, shoplifting from others, but not so much violating rules. A third subtype were those who engaged in aggressive behavior getting in fights with others, bullying others, being aggressive toward animals, and not engaging in the other behaviors. So nice, clean, distinct subtypes.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Matthew Knock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. And we are discussing conduct disorder. Dr. Nock, can you talk about the relationship between conduct disorder and disorders that might develop later in life?
1: Sure. What we found in the study that we were just discussing was really high rates of other disorders, other psychiatric disorders, among those who report having chronic disorder as a child. And we see high rates of what we think of as both internalizing disorders, such as depression and anxiety, as well as externalizing disorders, such as other uh, impulse control or aggressive disorders, as well as substance and alcohol use disorders. So we see higher rates across the board.
0: In your review article about the psychosocial treatment of child conduct problems, you found that several types of therapy are effective, and that's good news. Let's talk about a few of the most effective treatments.
1: So joining these two pieces of research together, what we found in the epidemiologic work done with Ron Kessler and Alan Kazden was that chronic disorder is predictive of the development of subsequent disorders. However, the risk of subsequent disorders is significantly decreased if chronic disorder remits. So if it if it goes away, and the same is true with oppositional defiant disorder, as we found in another paper. So this is, as you say, good news for, for treatment. So with treatment, there is something we can do um, not only to decrease these behaviors, but potentially to decrease the risk of other disorders that might develop later in life.
0: Right. And let's talk about the treatments, but just a quick question. Do you know, has it been studied, does it matter which subtype?
1: So I mentioned earlier the rule violation, deceit, theft, and aggressive subtypes. There's two other subtypes that were combinations of these. One is severe covert behavior, which is a combination of rule violations and deceit. And the last is what we call pervasive conduct disorder, and this is people who have symptoms of all of the different subtypes. And what we find is that those with the combined subtypes or the more severe subtypes are at significantly higher risk of subsequent disorders. So the more severe your conduct disorder, perhaps not surprisingly, the greater likelihood that you will develop other disorders.
0: Mm-hmm. And when to, do you all respond equally to treatment?
1: That's what we don't know. That's the next step is now that we have these subtypes, we would expect that perhaps different subtypes will respond differently to treatment. And even at a higher level, different treatments might be required for different subtypes.
0: Sure. So let's talk about treatment, starting with parent management training. What's the theory behind that approach?
1: A lot of times kids will come in for treatment for oppositional or or aggressive behaviors and treatment will focus on working with the parents. And the message that parents might get is that they're to blame for the child's behavior, and that's certainly not the case here. The theory of the behavior is that parents play an important role in shaping a child's behavior. And for some kids, and perhaps kids with chronic disorder, parents would do well, I think, to learn specific ways that they could respond to and prompt a child's behavior to increase the likelihood of positive or adaptive behaviors rather than negative behaviors. So the focus is really on teaching parents skills for managing maladaptive behaviors among their children.
0: Right. So it's not to blame them, but to empower them.
1: Very nicely said.
0: Another theory that has been tested and shown some good results is the one that is behind cognitive behavioral therapy. Can you describe that one?
1: And this involves working directly with the child or adolescent themselves and teaching them skills for managing their aggressive or uh, oppositional thoughts or behaviors. And this often takes the form of what's called problem-solving skills training, which involves teaching the child or adolescent how to identify problematic situations, how to generate adaptive solutions to these problems, how to choose the best solution, pick it, and then engage in it. And the treatment involves, on a weekly basis, meeting with the child, starting out simply and getting more complex, throwing problem situations at them, having them solve them with their clinician, and then actually, and very importantly, role-playing these in the session. So it's a very active, engaging treatment that's not just about talking about the problem, but actually practicing for these situations when they're likely to come up. Much like a sport or an instrument, practice makes perfect. So the more the clinician role plays and has the child work through these problems, the better they're going to be out in the environment.
0: What about offering families with children with conduct problems a combination of therapies?
1: That's exactly what is done. Very often, and one thing is Alan Kazan's clinic at Yale University does this, and researches very strongly in this area, Approaches that have parents coming in for parent management training, and at the same time, the child coming in for problem-solving skills training, so sort of a double dose of treatment. The parent gets treatment, the child gets treatment, and every fourth or fifth session, those folks will come together. Both clinicians are in the room, the parent and the child are both in the room. Parent clinician is coaching the parent, child clinician is coaching the child. And the combined approach, much more effective than either approach by itself.
0: The one approach that you found in your study that was ineffective was psychodynamic therapy, but it's still widely used.
1: Still widely used. So there's been, over the past decade or two, a push for what has changed in name now called the evidence-based treatment approach. Very popular in medicine generally and increasingly popular focus in psychological literature. Psychodynamic therapy and some other therapies have not fared as well under examination for the treatment of chronic problems, but they are still widely used. And people are now talking a lot about how to disseminate evidence-based approaches and have clinicians learn them and use them out in applied settings.
0: Lastly, you expressed concern that knowing whether a therapy is effective is not enough, that we must understand how it works and why. How will this contribute to better care?
1: It can play a very important role. So what we talk about in our work is the sort of three focuses of psychotherapy research. The focus so far has been on identifying evidence-based or effective or efficacious treatments. What we haven't done as well and where I think more work is heading is identifying mechanisms and moderators of change, mechanisms being the process through which treatment works and moderators factors that increase the effectiveness of treatment. In a nutshell, if we can understand how a treatment works, what components are active, and how they cause change, we can develop much more effective or efficient treatments. To use an analogy, when developing a a drug treatment, if we can identify really the active ingredient, the active component, and get rid of the inactive or other parts of that medication, we can develop a much more potent pill. The same is true with psychological treatments, we think.
0: Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Mark Golan, and my guest has been Dr. Matthew Nock, Director of the Laboratory of Clinical and Developmental Research in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Thank you for the interesting discussion, Dr. Nock.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: For comments and questions, send your email to XM at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.